0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan and I am joined today by my guest, Marissa R. Moss. Marissa is an award-winning journalist who has written about gender inequality within country music and whose work has appeared in outlets such as Rolling Stone, NPR, Billboard, Entertainment Weekly, and much more. Marissa's latest book is Her Country, How the Women of Country Music Became the Success They Were Never Supposed to Be and is published by Henry Holt and Company i Marissa. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Please share with us what your book is about. Sure. Um, well,
1: first off, yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, Her Country is a book about women in country music over the past 20 years and the struggles they've had to face to be successful in an industry that is basically designed for them to fail. Um, and it really, I think, kind of mirrors the experiences of women you know, across any, any, not only any genre of music, but in life. (laughs) Um, But this one does focus on three particular artists in, uh, in country music.
0: You open your book saying the story begins in 1999. And this is a time where the music press often looks back in hindsight, calling it the golden era for women in country music. But that was actually not true. What was happening in the world of country music at this time?
1: Yeah. So a lot of folks, I think when they think of country music and women, they think of the superstars of the nineties. So Shania Twain and Faith Hill and Reba and the chicks. um, And they were having a lot of success at the end of the nineties. They were having number one hits. Um, They were kind of dominating with the exception of, you know, Garth Brooks. They were really leading the genre in terms of popularity and airplay. And then, something happened. There was a very palpable shift in terms of how much airplay, country airplay they were getting, um, how much prominence they were kind of allowed to hold. Um, and what I do in the book is kind of look at how how and why this shift happened, but also even rethinking what we called that heyday and asking questions about, you know, was it even really the heyday we thought it was? Um, and how did we get to where we are now which is 10% of artists on country radio um, every year is about you know it's about 10% of artists on country radio are women um, which are really you know it's a really dismal statistic.
0: Right and you write that women are only played on country radio as little as 10% because of legislation that was passed in the 1990s that impacted the radio industry. Can you tell us more about the le- legislation what were its effects?
1: Sure. So in 1996, um, we were gifted um, with the Telecommunications Act. And what that, I'll try to give the least wonky summary, but essentially it led to a um, basically rampant consolidation across all industries and, you know, all sections of the music industry. But since we're talking about radio, it caused um, tons of consolidation and. And that led to localized programming being in the hands of, you know, giant corporations. So you used to have, you know, say someone in, uh, you know, in rural Tennessee in charge of their radio station, um, you know, being out and kind of about with their community and really in touch with what people were listening to or wanting to hear. Um, and then after the Telecommunications Act and all of this rampant consolidation, um, many of those local programmers got fired and they consolidated the programming within, you know, these giant corporations, basically. Um, and then you have to do, you have to find a way to kind of streamline your programming. So there's a reliance on this software that helps come up with playlists. And those are designed to tag women's songs as women's. So you don't tag men's songs as men's songs, but you tag women's songs as women's and you only program your software to play those songs, you know, maybe once an hour and never play them back to back. So it's not just, you know, sort of an obscure idea of sexism. It's actually programming. You know, it's it's, it's in the programming itself.
0: What factors of decisions are going into the software programming?
1: A lot of myths, so a lot of beliefs that women don't want to hear women, that people turn the dial when they hear women, um, you know, that women don't sell, all of those kinds of, I guess we can call them myths, but the the truth is to some degree they've become true because, because we've created the situations that exist around them. Um, you know, radio is a very kind of passive form of listening. You want to turn it on when you're in the car on the way to work or on the way to school, or you're listening on your headphones while you're vacuuming around the house or something like that. And, uh, and you want to hear what's familiar to you. So if all you've heard for, you know, again and again, um, are songs by men, that's, what's familiar to you. And that's what you'll respond to. So now even when songs by women are tested on radio audiences, they often don't respond well to women and not because they're genetically programmed, not to like the sound of a woman's voice or something like that. It's because they've been conditioned to be that way. So um, we're really in deep, I guess, is the summary.
0: I'm glad we, uh, you brought up the concept of the myth because a couple decades prior to the period we're discussing now within country music, there was this myth that a lot of popular male country singers were considered outlaws and often thought of as renegades with the industry but there were a lot of pioneering women in the genre writing and performing songs about real things and issues. Who were these women and what were they singing about?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the person in country music who's had the most songs banned from country radio is Loretta Lynn. It's not, uh, you know, some kind of outlaw it's Loretta. Um, and she was singing about the pill and birth control writing about abortion in her book. Um, And the women of that generation, obviously, everyone knows Dolly Parton, um, were really pushing pushing country music lyrically. Um, And I think, like you said, we often focus on that kind of outlaw myth of whatever, you know, I I love the music that we consider to be outlaw, whatever that is. It's kind of a vague um, category. But the first... You know, the the moment in country music history that created The Outlaw was a compilation CD called Wanted the Outlaws, and that was made for a major label. So, you know, it wasn't very outlaw. It was a marketing construct, and everybody knew it and participated in that. Um, And meanwhile, you have, like I said, women like Loretta Lynn, you know, singing about, you know, what I see to be kind of outlawish subjects, especially in terms of country music. Um, so, we've always kind of done a poor job of giving women their proper um, proper critical due. I mean, we even sort of, Dolly Parton, though she's enormously beloved now, um, was kind of like just a, you know, a, a critical blonde joke up until 15, 20 years ago. I mean, she was not looked up as this uh, bastion of, uh, you know, songwriting ability and artistic genius and um, altruism and all that until until fairly recently when we look back and everyone was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was I mean, she's always been in on her joke in the best possible way. But we didn't start giving Dolly her due until, until pretty recently.
0: You brought up Loretta Lynn and writing about the pill and, and abortion and birth control as an example of country music in the 60s and 70s, but these are still outlaw ideas even now, Will we consider legislation that has been passed uh, in many states, I know yours uh, in Tennessee uh, included, that continue to have severe detrimental impact on, on women. Um, how is that still being reflected in country music today?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about a song like The Pill. Um, in the context of, I think, especially where we are today. Um, And how it would, we've made, I don't think we've probably made any progress in terms of how the reception to a song like that would be. I don't think it would not be played on country radio today, just as it wasn't played on country radio then. Um, I mean, you have artists like Margot Price, for example, who's really kind of forward about her political beliefs, not just in private or in public, but also in her songwriting. And, you know, I don't think she really made an aggressive go at country radio at any point, but it never, you know, they never made any attempt at bringing her into their fold either. Um, And you see it now, even when someone like, uh, you know, Maren Morris is outspoken about her beliefs, just kind of the kind of constant um, backlash that she has to navigate Um, but, you know, there's an audience for, there's an audience for country music like that. I think, you know, I think there's a huge audience for country music like that. Um, and, you know, there's certainly the audience that would be, you know, find themselves in my book, I would hope.
0: Well, you shine a light uh, on a lot of artists in your book, but you, pri- you you primarily cover 3 people in particular. And one of the women you profile throughout the book is Casey Musgraves, who is now a very accomplished and successful country singer. Can you share with us what her background was like it was like as a young performer?
1: Sure. I mean, Casey got started, you know, as little as you could imagine. She had a a yodeling duo called the Texas Two-Bits. Um, you know, when she was not even in the double digits. So she kind of knew really, really young that she had a talent and, but not only had the talent, but had the ambition and the drive to want to do something with it make it her career. Um, Her, she was from a really tiny town in rural Texas. um, And her parents were super supportive, super creative and artistic. So, you know, when she was bored, they were like, you know, go write a poem. And so she did, um, you know, go ride your bike, get outside. Um, and so she sang in this duo called the Texas two bits. She played at George W. Bush's inaugural ball, um, which is really interesting and eventually went out on her own as a solo artist. Um, you know, when she was around 13, first band breakup at 13 and, uh, you know, like a lot of artists, I think spent, sometime kind of figuring out her own voice and who she was and, and who she um, wasn't, but never really kind of lacked in purpose and kind of the final destination, which was to be a songwriter. You know, I don't, I don't think she ever sat around and dreamt of superstardom as her outcome, you know, maybe to the degree that, you know, she's a superstar now. She's playing, Huge venues and a winning Grammy of the, you know, album of the year. But I don't think she dreamt of superstardom. I think she dreamt of being a successful songwriter. Um, which makes it kind of even cooler that, you know, she was like, I, you know, I don't know if she was sitting around dreaming about being famous just to be famous. She wanted to be kind of a, you know, Emmylou Harris.
0: You had just mentioned George W. Bush as one uh, in the inauguration, but, um, that Casey performed at, but, uh, another event that she had performed at prior was the black tie and boots gala for his first presidential campaign. And you write that this reflected something deeper happening within the country. And that Bush was homing in on this unoriginal idea of country music being a political and capital tool. Can you discuss more about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's this very common belief, especially after, um, what happened to then known as the Dixie chicks now known as the chicks, um, that country music is not a political art form that it should stay, you know, that it's always that country music is all about keeping politics and music separate. Um, that actually couldn't be any more from any further from the truth. Um, country music has always been a political art form. i not, there's no form that is art form that is not political. I mean, <laughs> um, that is not a thing, but country music was created as music for white people. So in its inception, country music was made and marketed, um, as a musical form for white people. Um, and then race records were for black people. So it was segregated in its inception. So, uh, to call country music, a, a political form with that foundational, um, you know, with that history is kind of ludicrous, but has been used by politicians as a means of connecting with their um, electorate, you know, ever since then, um, it, you know, everyone from Wallace up to uh, present day and before, um, and it's found its way as, you know, in, in the Southern strategy and even in, you know, as you mentioned, George W. Bush, it was a, it was kind of a keystone of his, uh, of his approach, you know, appearing down home and connected to folks back in Texas. Um, country music has always been a political form. I mean, and if you're connecting with the deepest kind of meeting of the country music that we hold up as being outlaw or authentic, it's singing about, you know, poverty and the working class and class struggle and, uh, that is all very political. Um, So there's really no way to untangle one from the other. And I'm not sure why you would ever really want to try.
0: And this is a theme you explore throughout the book. And there's a very startling sentence that you write that uh, country music's obsession with the past became a perfect tool in which to express the evolving Republican ideal that America was better before. And this is a period we're talking about where the nation had exhibited toxic ideas like segregation. What was it about this contemporary country music that spoke to people who wanted to live in an imagined past? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the first thing I heard when I heard a phrase like, you know, make America great again, was it reminded me of a country song. It was, you know, uh, that kind of connection with nostalgia and fear of, progress, um, in whatever form that might be, whatever sort of level of insidiousness that might be. Um, country music now is, you know, it is all about holding up sort of that small town nostalgia. Um, and that's what made something like Casey Musgraves first song called merry-go-round first single rather called merry-go-round. So interesting to me. Um, Because at the time, country music was so focused on, in Silla's, holding up this idea of the small town as kind of this perfect, idyllic um, vessel. And uh, merry go round was not that. You know, it was honest about the, uh, you know, traps and desolation um, and disappointments that can come by staying trapped in your small town. And, uh, and that was really bold and brave to do because you're not supposed to tell the truth anymore about what this life really looks like. Um, and we, you know, we see that so much politically now too. It's like, you know, getting back to this, this day of, you know, this better time, whatever that means. Um, and the idea that that better time, you know, that, there could have been a, ever been a better time in America, <laughs> um, with the history that we have had as a nation. Um, the idea of going back to a, a better time is is almost a ludicrous concept, and so that's why, you know, something that I think country music has always wrestled with, and kind of why it's perfect for connecting with people who are so fearful of progress, fearful of change, holding so strongly onto nostalgia, even. Um, you know, kind of even at their own cost, you know, voting for voting against their best interests. Um, these things are all very much, I keep going back to the, you know, the country music and politics thing, but it's also very linked. Um, and that's, you know, I think part of the reason why I decided to call my book, her country, because it's not just about country music. It's about, um, something bigger than that.
0: So small towns and nostalgia are the foundations for this branding that the country country music industry is establishing, all under the guise of preserving a sense of family, which implies tradition and adherence to norms. In country music, women were called terrible names for disrupting the status quo, while men who were lauded as outlaws and renegades were celebrated. Why was this duality accepted?
1: Hmm why, you know, because it worked, (laughs) um, (laughs) because it made money. Um, and it still does, you know, that's just, I think what is unique to country music that isn't, um, that is very different from other art forms is that, you know, change and progress and, um, and constantly morphing and evolving is embraced. I mean, you never think about pop as something to want to kind of go back into past traditions, unless we're having, you know, some sort of kind of nostalgia moment that is maybe even a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, but other art forms, pop, jazz, you know, um, I mean, maybe even, you know, these art forms are praised for when they move forward, you know, and, um, I mean, of course, in jazz, you can have a come, you know, there are sort of purists and traditionalists, um, but country music does really like to stay exactly where it is and stay with what's working and is very hesitant to change. Um, and these problems, this sort of deeply embedded and baked in misogyny is so prevalent and so accepted and so part of the norm that I don't think anyone knows how to fight against it or how to work against it. Um, And it's even upheld by the women themselves a lot of the time, you know, whether by choice or by sort of factors out of their control or fear that if they speak out they will be um, sort of pushed out or punished, which is a real fear. So there's no sort of, there's no real path, I think, that a lot of people see out of these circumstances.
0: You write in your book, one perfect example of the crushing duality of that country music industrial complex and the way it prioritizes comfort or even lies over truth is the story of Shelley Wright. Could you tell us more about her?
1: Sure. So Shelly was a big country star um, in the 90s. So she came onto the scene, she had a big hit single um, called Single White Female. I think it was in 98, um, terrible with dates and times. Um, But she was kind of, you know, at the time, one of the one name female country artists like a Shania. Um, Super talented, great voice songwriter, you know, great songwriter um, she was also firmly in the closet. She's a lesbian. She was firmly in the closet at the time, um, for sheer reasons of fear. Um, you know, she knew that there would be consequences for coming out in Nashville within her, um, and also within her faith system. And, uh, and so she lived in the closet until, 2010, um, all through her time in country music, having to, you know, sing about dating men and have hits off of that. And, um, just kind of having to live this lie essentially out of deep, deep fear. Um, and you know, she was right when she finally came out, she had a a wonderful book where she told her story and, um, obviously has not had a hit on country radio since then. And I don't think would even sort of desire to try, but uh, you know, she kind of had to, she was living this lie in her life and in her song because she knew she had to, to survive, um, which is really, really heartbreaking. You know, she got to the point where she was considering, um, you know, she had, thoughts of suicide and, um, and she just knew she couldn't, you know, live like that anymore. But for her, it was not, can I have both of these things? It was always, if I, if I live my truth, I'm going to have to sacrifice country stardom. Um, and we are even to this day, I think still wrestling with that, um, in terms of, you know, can we let, you know, can we have a a queer country star, and um, we have nowhere, you know, gonna not come anywhere near close enough to being able to, you know, to uh, you know, to being able to reckon with that. I think.
0: Another artist who you profile throughout the book is Marin Morris, who you write was proof that a little girl with talent could break through and sing with an otherworldly maturity. Can you tell us about where Marin comes from?
1: Sure. So Marin. Um, was born outside of Dallas um, in a town called Arlington. And, you know, similar to Casey Musgrave, she discovered her voice really young, um, but they did have very different kind of paths in terms of um, Marin kind of hopped into like the bar scene very early. Uh, Casey was, you know, performing in her country duo, but Marin was on stage with, you know, an electric guitar twice the size of her body, um, starting at 11 years old, playing at dance halls and honky tonks and bars in Texas. Um, really looked up to Leanne Rimes, um, really looked up to Patty Griffin, to the chicks, um, and was just kind of playing music constantly, you know, with backing band of men two or three times her age. Um, and just kind of playing the Texas circuit and uh, doing that until she was in her late teens. You know, the entire time through her high school years, she was, you know, going to school during the day and then on the weekends touring regionally around Texas. Um, Had a couple albums even before her major label debut. Um, Even some regional Texas airplay. So she definitely kind of, was able to achieve the most success that the Texas country scene would probably allow a woman to have, uh, which is a limited amount. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know, sometimes you see someone kind of come onto the scene and you assume that they just sort of came out of nowhere or was an industry plant or some kind of crazy thing. But, um, Marin had been working at it for, you know, Again, like Casey, since, you know, before she was in the double digits.
0: So while Casey and Marin were young performers honing their craft, it was during President Bush's first term in office, and during this time 9-11 happened, and its impact reverberated everywhere. What was 9-11's impact on country music?
1: It was huge. Um, so at the time of 9-11, you had these, you know, big, powerful women of country music kind of reigning, still pretty strong. They were on the decline a little bit in terms of country airplay, but you had, you know, Faith Hill and Rebunch and I putting out these big ballads and pop crossover moments. 9-11 happened and suddenly country music makes this shift to super patriotic songs. Um, so, you know, Toby Keith had this song. I guess patriotic is almost a kind word. Some of them were downright nationalistic. Um, and you had Toby Keith singing about putting a boot in a terrorist ass and all these, you know, very sort of patriotic, um, red, white, and blue, uh, bow to the flag kind of stuff that just was no longer working up against you know, in these, in the eyes of these programmers against these ballads and, you know, big moments from from the women of country music. Um, and so they were just, you know, put aside. If you're going to you know, have to choose between a Shania Twain song and a, uh, you know, put a boot in a terrorist ass song, they were going with the boot in the terrorist ass. Um, and that continued for a long time and kind of evolved into you know, feeding that nostalgia syndrome that we were talking about. So it was, you know, pro-America, 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 and then, you know, small town, all of that, um, go back to when things were good again, all kind of, you know, were dominoes in the same line.
0: One of the biggest stories in music at that time was what happened to the Dixie Chicks, who would later rename themselves as the Chicks following the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And this was a trio of women who were incredibly talented and wildly successful. But despite that, at that time, they were still not held to the same esteem as their male peers. Can you talk about the success and what happened to them uh, as country radio was becoming more patriotic?
1: Sure. So as you said, the Chicks, you know, they were... They were massive stars, um, not just in country music, but across all genres of music. Um, They were playing, you know, in the country music space at country music festivals, played on country radio like crazy, but also showing up at Lilith Fair. So they were kind of hitting all kinds of sides of the culture. Um, And even, you know, they had a song called Traveling Soldier that was about kind of the pains and losses of war. Um, that was getting some country airplay leading into what ended up happening with them, um, which was speaking out against the war on the eve of the invasion of Iraq um, and doing it on foreign soil and uh, getting kind of almost instantaneously banned from country radio, pushed out of country music. Um, You know, people organized, uh, chick-smashing parties where they would run tractors over their albums. Um, and, you know, I think uh, it would be really interesting to think about what would have happened if they were men making the same statement. You know, there, there would have been some consequences, I'm sure, but I don't think there would have been the same kind of, um, kind of coordinated efforts to just completely dispose of them from country music, um, especially because there was kind of this already, you know, but yeah, I think there was a sentiment that they were, uh, getting a little bit too mouthy and holding a little bit too much power for women, um, that, you know, people were definitely already uncomfortable with that. So I think there was almost like a, you know, I don't want to say that people were happy to have a reason to dispose of them. But, you know, it's possible.
0: Well, let's talk about that. Around this time, women were still expected to sing ballads and crossover hits in country music. But as you said, men were performing songs about fighting and killing terrorists. But at the same time, women were also seen as inauthentic in country music. And I want to know what exactly was so authentic about rich white men writing these songs from their mansions that appealed to country music fans, especially those fans who would actually enlist in the military in response to 9-11. That's a
1: very good question. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and one that I, I wish I understood more. Um, and I think, you know, one that we haven't departed from, you know, Jason Aldean is still, you know, kind of making his living off of this, you know, down home connection to the working man. And, Meanwhile, is constantly, you know, posting Instagram stories from his Florida mansions and traveling on private jets. I'm not saying he's not allowed to do that; most rock stars or successful artists do. Um, but you know, why does he get to sort of sell that idea of connection to the working man um, when a woman is seen as totally uh, disconnected and inauthentic? Um, and I think this, you know, it comes back to even this idea of authenticity itself, um, holding on to whatever that means. Um, we do it so very strongly in country music, yet no one can ever really explain what authentic is. You know, it's and when we think of an authentic country singer, we think of like a man in jeans and a flannel shirt and a cowboy hat or a trekker hat. Um, that is sort of this farce of authenticity that we've created in our heads to tell the story of country music. Um, and it's why I like the picture, uh, the cover of the book has a picture of Casey Musgraves on it in a mini skirt and heels, uh, playing at a rock and roll, you know, playing at Lollapalooza in Chicago. And that is not, you know, sort of a quote, authentic, um, presentation of country music as we like to be attached to it um, but you know I think you know it expresses uh, what I love about country music Casey Musgraves expresses what I love about country music and I don't ever want to use that I, you know that word authentic um, and it's such a very good way to gatekeep people out of country music is to have this sort of you know authenticity test in your head. Um, and that most often means you're a male. It certainly means you're white. Um, certainly means you're straight. And if you are not any of those things, then you have to, you know, sort of cater to all these other really meaningless markers to try to prove your authenticity constantly. Um, And those are just kind of ludicrous uh, constraints to place on an art form. Uh, And yet we do it constantly in country music.
0: There was something you wrote in your book that was so incredibly profound. You write the patriotic obsession in country music also gave the coastal press a chance to dismiss the listeners who they already assumed were poor and uneducated and simply did not know better. And I thought what made this so profound was because the dichotomy between the media and country music fans was incredibly useful to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Can you talk more about this dichotomy and the effects it had?
1: Yeah. I mean, i I thought it was really important to to point that out and to sort of deconstruct how there is this um, kind of constant dismissal of country music as a high art form this constant dismissal of a country music fan, country music listener, that so closely mirrors, it's done by, I think you can kind of refer to it as the coastal press as a blanket term. Um, That is, that really reflects, I think, what happens in kind of our broader perceptions of rural people, you know, people who live in red states—all of that—in the way of, um, you know, that you can really see reflected in politics. I mean, I think of, uh, you know, sort of Hillary Clinton saying that Trump's um, Trump's followers, you know, is a basket of deplorables or whatever the, and you know, I personally understand exactly what she was trying to say, because. But I think though in that being interpreted, people interpreting what she said as not, you know, talking about the people sort of he was choosing to have him around him politically, but that she was speaking directly to them. You know, there was a reason that they thought that she was looking down on them so strongly is because it happens kind of constantly. Um, There is a dismissal of, you know, of Southern and rural and Midwestern people and people in red states that I think is you know, you can draw this very close parallel, obviously, to what happens in country music um, that is really important and interesting to look at. Um, and it's why I wanted to, why I picked a group of, of people all from Texas, um, because it made a really interesting way to kind of parallel to the way that we look at Texas politically now. And I'll see it now, you know, when, Sort of some kind of really horrible, uh, you know, anti trans or abortion legislation comes up, people, um, you know, kind of in blue states will say, oh, well, you know, everyone there deserved it. You know, you guys voted for that, Um, which is such a, you know, like a a blanket, um, dangerous way to talk about an entire group of people. Um, There are, you know, and at the you know the end of the day, it's usually a you know a black woman that comes along to save us after we've made all those assumptions, as with uh, as with Georgia. But uh, you know, I kind of wanted to to make sure to highlight that part of the story and sort of put the a little bit of the blame too, back on the the music press for how they've sort of thought about country music and treated it over the years. Um, it's not an easy thing to do and maybe not advantageous if you're you know, wanting people to talk about your book um, in those places, but I felt that it was necessary to kind of
0: call them on it. Absolutely, I agree. I think it's very important to explore that dichotomy um, because there is an industry advantage in that. And you write about that industry advantage because country music as an industry wanted to facilitate a connection with its fans and become more important to its fans than ever. Um, But this was happening at a time when much of white America was growing increasingly angry and alienated during the Trump administration. And so I want to know how the industry fed into the ethos of country music and reflected that. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: It's been incredibly interesting to see and watch how country music has responded. Um, And in some ways, it's been really heartening to see certain artists decide to, you know, finally start speaking up for what they believe in and trying to reach fans that you know, only they can reach. That's kind of the unique power of country music. It does have this deep connection with fans that aren't always spoken to by, um, other types of music, but there has been a, another segment of, of country music and the country music world. That's really decided to kind of double down. And, and I would say almost take advantage of people feeling alienated and angry and, uh, and use it to forge a a stronger connection with them. Um, I've been seeing artists like Jason Aldean who pledged for years that they would never, you know, keep politics and music separate, won't comment on elections, won't comment on anything, um, even to the point that he was standing on on stage uh, during a mass shooting and still would not comment about gun control. Um, so adamant to keep up that politics no politics in my music no music in my politics Um, but come Trump and come the events of January 6th and Biden uh, winning the election and, and certain people believing that he did not do it lawfully have decided to um, kind of use that anger and alienation, I think, to connect with fans and have suddenly become outspoken politically. Um, you know, kind of, I was watching some of them post Instagram stories and, um, you know, with election fraud, you know, suddenly they're outspoken about election fraud after 20 years of not saying a thing. And, uh, and it's getting them fans, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing them fans that I don't think really cared about, maybe didn't love or care about their music before because they just uh, liked Trump or believed in the election lie or all of these things and they needed something to hang on to. Um, And that's really scary to me because I'm seeing artists do that, that I don't know if they, um, you know, I don't know if it's worse or you do if you do or don't believe these things, but I'm seeing artists um, kind of transparently use that connection with this angry alienated fan base um and uh and that you know that that's troubling and scary
0: a lot of the artists we're talking about are largely white men and i wanted to discuss trump's influence on stoking white fear and emboldening white supremacy before we discuss the third woman you profile throughout the book mickey guyton who is one of only four black women solo artists that chart in country music. Can you tell us more about Mickey's background?
1: Sure. Yeah. So all three of the women that I focused on in, uh, in the book come from Texas and um, Mickey grew up um, out, you know, in a couple of different places in Texas, across Waco, Arlington, outside of Dallas. And unlike Casey and unlike Marin did not, kind of grow up performing on the Texas circuit, I think in part because that environment would not have been conducive to a young black woman in rural Texas trying to come up and sing country songs um, in honky-tonks. Uh, but she did sing in church and you know her talent was kind of immediately clear to her parents and everyone around her. Um, she too loved Leigh Rhymes and the Chicks and Shania. Um, I think what was different is that she was very aware of the fact that she did not look you know, she looked around, she did not see a, not just a black woman. She, you know, with the exception of Charlie pride, um, was not seeing, you know, a black country artist on MTV and I'm sorry, CMT. Um, she was very, you know, she understood that, um, it was an extremely closed off industry, um, with kind of deep, um, racist roots that had not been reckoned with. Um, and so she, when she graduated from high school, she went to LA to pursue, uh, a college degree, but also acting because I think she thought, well, you know, I like entertainment. Um, but country music is just way too tough for a black woman and closed off to me. And, and that didn't really fit because she wants to be a country singer. And, uh, Eventually, when she had decided to kind of finally give up on, you know, the entertainment industry, ran into someone that mentioned to her that he had been working with a producer who was kind of looking to work with a black uh, female country artist. She was like, oh, well, you found your person. Um, And she was signed to a major label um, in Nashville, and interestingly enough, kind of all around the same time as Casey was signed, as Marin was signed. And again, that's sort of the reason why I chose this three group of three women because even um, given the enormous struggles that women face, it is really important to highlight the even larger and higher barriers that Black women in country music face. Um, and you can do that by saying, you know, Casey, Mary, Mickey all came to Nashville around the same time. They all came from Texas. They're all women. Why was Mickey's record not put out until last year? You know? Um, And I constantly wanted to make sure that I was kind of checking that and, uh, you know, being as intersectional as possible in my conversations around this.
0: Well, you share a really interesting story about Mickey and, It's as she progresses throughout her career, she eventually gets to perform for President Obama. And one would think that performing for a president would be a real boost, but it wasn't exactly the jumping off point for Mickey that she needed, because you still needed a record label to push you to country radio. And this was not enough to do that. Can you tell us about the erasure Black women have endured within country radio?
1: Yeah, I mean, you... It, like you said, is uh, you know she had this moment playing for President Obama, and she even told me she you know she thought that this was going to be her moment, um, but her label was not supporting her, and uh, you have to you know you can't just kind of have an organic moment without your label being willing to put out your singles and push them and promote them. Um, And this is kind of a barrier that women in country music, even when a Black woman is able to kind of work her foot into the door, kind of constantly encounters. Um, So that's why I talk about Reese Palmer, who is an artist that came before Mickey. um, And she had a song called Country Girl that was... Uh, released a country radio, really great, kind of perfect for the moment pop country song, um, but as a black woman, could not, you know, kind of get the institutional support. Um, and Reese looks back to Miko Marks, who was an artist that was um, another black female artist who came to Nashville around the same time. Um, you know, could not again get the institutional support to make her, you know, career get off the ground. Um, and I think, you know, they were both kind of told that there could only be one black female artist at a time anyway, so they couldn't both succeed. Um, and you can kind of keep going back down the line, um, you know, back to Linda Martell and Frankie Staten of black women that have had success in country music, um, only to the degree to which the men around them are comfortable with. Um, And that's, you know, a repetitive pattern that keeps happening and has happened up to Mickey. Um, And I think will keep happening unless Nashville and Music Row um, is willing to make some kind of fundamental changes. The difference now is that there are Um, some coalitions forming and ways that artists can get their music out that is not dependent on country radio, um, which gives people, I think, a bit of hope and a way to work around the machinery of Nashville and Music Row.
0: We touched upon authenticity earlier when discussing patriotic and nationalistic country songs after 9-11 how are black women not seen as authentic in country music?
1: Oh, I mean, that's what one of the things I think is so interesting to look at with Mickey. She is constantly, constantly seen as not being authentic yet. She is from Texas. She grew up kind of playing in the dirt. Her house was, you know, kind of minutes away from the George W. Bush's. Um, and, you know, grew up in the church, uh, woman of faith, you know, all those kind of markers that make an authentic country singer in quotes. Um, and yet I remember even when Mickey came out with her first single in, uh, you know, this was around 2015. It's a pop country song, you know, it's called better than you left me. It's, uh, it's just a kind of a pure pop country radio song and a very good one. She sounds beautiful on it. Um and I remember some of the reviews at the time were like, you know, she Mickey Guyton is um, you know, a great meeting place between, you know, country music and, and RB. And I was like, well, there there's no RB in her voice. It's a country song. Um, but she was labeled kind of immediately as R&B just because she was a Black woman. You know, there was, no, there was nothing sonically. She's a country singer. Um, but I think kind of immediately from setting, you know, stepping foot into Nashville as a Black woman, you are, you have to do everything right and play by all the right rules and work so hard to earn any bit of that authenticity cred that men and and white women are just kind of instantly endowed with. Um, And that's just kind of an impossible struggle because you're never going to prove you're authentic enough. Um, You're never going to satisfy them because it's never going to be about that, you
0: know, Though women are still marginalized within country music and really all music, they're still defiant in their advocacy for inclusion. And an example you write about in your book is Follow Your Arrow, a song by Casey Musgraves that had a huge impact on queer representation in country music. Can you share with us how these artists, specifically the women in country music, are elevating the LGBTQ plus community?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, follow the follow your arrow is a really important moment to talk about, not just because it sort of has this um, little, not even super specific reference to, um, you know, she says, you know, kiss lots of girls if that's what you're into. It's not super cutting edge. It's just, you know, it's a lyric, um, but it's inclusive. And she um, had two queer songwriters that she wrote the song with, Shane McAnally and Brittany Clark. And she was very intentional about bringing them to award shows and making sure they were visible, making sure they came on stage when the song won awards, um, making sure to always kind of say, you know, I'm I'm the straight woman in this mix. I'm an ally, but who you really need to let in the door are, you know, the queer songwriters that I'm in the room with and those artists, too, and. And that's kind of the most revolution- revolutionary part of that song's life to me. You know, not just what it said, but the fact that she was re- working really hard to bring other people into the room with her. And that's what I think women are really working on doing, kind of furiously now, is not just sort of being an uh, an ally in, you know, in speech but being an ally in action. So in, you know, writing with queer songwriters, bringing them on tour with them, um, diversifying their crew, their touring crew, their band. Um, and I'm seeing that happen a lot. And that's, that's kind of the most exciting thing to see happen um, because it's taking it just from words to actual practice and tangible change.
0: At the end of your book, you write about moving to Nashville from New York and your decade of experience writing about country music and your interactions with many of the people you discuss in your book. What changes have you seen for women in country since arriving in Nashville?
1: Uh, I mean, it's a complicated question because the, the representation on country radio is still just as bad as it always was, um unless you sing a duet with a man, then you can get your song played. Um, That's a bit of a trend now. And I guess that's one way to go about it. Um, But I have seen, um, you know, even just shifts in terms of, to look at Maren Morris, um, kind of the agency that women have felt that they can take and own in country music. I mean, Maren Morris is so outspoken. and actually gets some play on country radio, so it's kind of in this position of having the most to lose in terms of you know she is one of the chosen few that will get played on country radio, um, but she decided that you know it's she's willing to take that gamble um, by speaking out for what she believes in, and I think that's created a really important um, it's kind of emboldened in a very good way women to speak their mind and to speak up for what they believe in Um, and to form coalitions with other women or, or queer artists, um, coalitions of black country artists. All of these groups are forming to go outside of the system. Um, There's this group called black Opry, which is a touring collective of black country artists, um, which is just kind of growing this incredible kind of, Country music always calls itself a family. Um, I think that's a little bull, but something like Black Opry is creating an actual, um, an actual kind of family and ecosystem for people that always felt left out and left behind of the genre that they love, that they never thought loved them back. Um, and those are the real changes I think that I've seen. Is just these kind of, um, you know, coalition building and figuring out ways to not try to change Music Row and country radio, because at this point I don't know if it will ever change, but to go build something entirely new.
0: So what do you see for women in country in the coming years, especially as we consider what social media and online communities can do to deconstruct more traditional media outlets?
1: And I think they'll continue to use these unconventional ways and communities to reach more and more, fans. And again, I don't think it will shift country radio. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I do think it will start to shift um, future generations in terms of who feels like owns country music, you know, who is country music for? If you are able to go on streaming or or wherever you get your music and, and discover that there are artists singing about You know, uh, you know, there's a, you know, you find a non-binary country artist and they're singing your story to you. Um, You're going to change how you feel about this genre that maybe you thought, you know, completely dismissed your life experience. Um, And that is, you know, that's kind of what keeps me going, I guess. I kind of hope that um, so many more people will feel let in to this genre and feel like they own it too, that it's also theirs, that they can use it to sing their truths to, you know, future generations and so on and so forth. And um, and that's definitely I think the kind of the, the positives that I see and the shifts. Um, so less about any kind of holding out hope for you know, mainstream country radio, but definitely feeling hopeful about uh, Allison Russell calls it the rainbow coalition um, for the artists in those communities to, um, you know, just kind of keep exponentially growing.
0: So my final question for you would be who are some up and coming women, transgender, non-binary artists in country that you would like to shout out and boost?
1: Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should have like a, a list, um, in front of me. Um, but some folks I'm really loving right now are Brittany Spencer, um, Kelsey Walden, Emily Scott Robinson, um, a Dean artist. Um, gosh, there's Leah Blevins. Um, there's so many, it's sometimes hard to sit down and even remember all of them. Um, but any of those artists could lead you down a great, you know, wormhole. If you go to, um, if you go find Black Opry, the sheer amount of talent that is in their touring co- coalition, um, I discovered this autumn, this artist, Autumn Nichols, through Black Opry. And I was just absolutely floored with how talented they are. Um, and it kind of is mind blowing how much incredible talent there is outside of the mainstream. Um, so yeah, it's there if you, if you're just willing to look and it isn't, you know, luckily these days is not even that difficult. Um, and you know, you latch on to someone that you love, like a, a Margo Price or Reese Palmer or Marin Morris and see who they're touring with and see who they're bringing on, you know, Um, you know, they're tweeting and, um, you know, see who they're talking about and everyone's kind of really, uh, you know, putting themselves in the ring to fight for this together and lift each other up. And, uh, that's a really good thing.
0: Marissa, thank you for joining me today. This was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, Those are great questions.
0: Of course. I'm happy to have you. And I just want to say um, to write a book that bucks against a major industry and does so with deeply rich cultural and social context is an incredibly hard thing to do. And you accomplished that admirably with your book and you should be incredibly proud. It's a fantastic book.
1: Oh, gosh. Thank you. You're going to make me cry now. (laughs) That's really nice of you to say thank you.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Marissa R. Moss. Her book is Her Country, How the Women of Country Music Became the Success They Were Never Supposed to Be, and is published by Henry Holt and Company.